Hey everyone, welcome back to another time of Storytime with the Historist with your traditional hosts, Mr. Breen and Ms. Dumas. And today we are lucky to have a guest Historist with us today. That would be Mr. Hammond, who you all know very well through Legacy. Hello, Mr. Hammond. Hi, everybody. Um, I'm also a 10th grade history teacher at Legacy, and I'm also a Rocky fan. Ooh, I think Rocky is a perfect segue into our topic for today. Uh, real quick for the kids at home, because there's no way they know this cinematic classic. Uh, which Rocky are you referring to? Are you talking about Rocky 1, Rocky 2, Rocky 3, Rocky 4? Right, well, stop right there. I'm thinking about Rocky 4. Yeah. 1985. 1985, Rocky Four, which means we are at the climactic moment of the Cold War, which is going to be today's topic, uh, the creation of a bipolar world after the completion of World War II. Now, is Rocky Four where, like, Drago goes, I'll break you, or something like that? Yes, he does. And <laughs> the way this all gets started in Rocky Four is we have these two gloves these boxing gloves at the beginning of the movie that rise up and then they turn and one has the united states emblem and the other has the soviet union and they just race to each other and they race and they like rockets and they explode oh that's so, so awesome. symbolic so cold symbolic. war all right, so you, uh, if you're listening at home, you need some background to understand what that, that conflict is all about because it's more than just Drogo beating the crap out of, is it Apollo Creed or is it Creed already? No, it's the first, no, he beats Apollo Creed in the first, the first fight, yeah. Okay, yeah. Kills him. Then, yeah, doesn't he kill him? Yeah, 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 yeah. He kills him and then Rocky has to get the revenge and then it made way for the awesome Creed movies that came out a couple of years ago. Yeah. This is not a pop culture podcast, but I think we've landed on something pretty good here. We really could make it a pop culture there's so many things there's to choose so many from. options All so right. so before we go down the the pop culture alley mr breen can you entertain us and just let us know first of all what is this the cold war we're talking about Okay, so you got to put yourself in the moment. It's 1945-46. World War II is over. The Germans have been vanquished. The Japanese have been nuked and vanquished. And the world is looking to rebuild. And in and, and a lot of ways, I think we, we can start to look at World War II as an extension of World War I. I remember when I was taking my history classes uh, you know, back 20 years ago, uh, a British historian named A.J.P. Taylor had posited this idea that World War I and World War II were the same war. They're just a uh -huh. continuation of each other that war is now complete the germans have been vanquished as a foe and now there's two real main powers that are left over there's the soviet union and the united states the british are they're on the on the decline and they're not going to be a world power any longer the way they had been for the last you know 250 uh -huh. 300 years of our podcast but the united states has now got to look at a what was an enemy before world war ii uh -huh ally during World War II, and they got to look at the Soviet Union and say, are you going to be friend or foe? Right. And um, from the United States perspective, the automatic answer to that, it seems to be foe because the communist state uh, and model that's been adopted by the Soviet Union runs like antithetical to the United States model of capitalism and free democracy. Was that, but was that clear, like right off the bat that they were going to be foe was, I mean, I know there's like Potsdam and Yalta, like was, right. was it like immediately 45 ends, World War II ends, Germany surrenders, Japan surrenders, and then the United States and the Soviet Union who had had like this loose relationship as allies during the war, like automatically break apart and say, I hate you, or did something lead to this? It's kind of a slow burn in some ways. So, so there's a, like, not to get too insider baseball with this one, but like FDR, who had been the American president at Yalta, mm -hmm. had fashioned a really strong relationship with 
uh, Joseph Stalin. And Stalin um, uh, was really viewed as, as an enemy by Winston Churchill. So from the British perspective and half of the Allied perspective, you know, like ah, this is a guy not to be tr trusted. And, you know, in some ways that makes some sense because if you go back to the Treaty of Brest-Litovsk that ended um, World War I for the Russians, the Russians had viewed uh, their revolution as being a worldwide revolution from the very beginning. Right. Uh -huh. And so um, from the Russian perspective, like they're going to continue to push. They also want to have like a barrier from the United States. They want to uh -huh. have this like buffer um, so that um, they can't be invaded. They want to keep all that territory that they rolled up from the Germans in 42, 43, 44 and 45. Uh -huh. And so from the perspective of the Russians, they're looking warily at the United States and the West. Similarly, especially after uh, FDR dies um, and Truman takes over, he doesn't have the same view of the uh -huh. Russians uh, and the Soviet Union that FDR did. And so uh, it seems like by about 46, like both camps sort of settle in. And then uh, we get in 46, the famous Iron Curtain speech. So, um, Mr. Mr. Hammond, I want to bring you into this a little bit. Yeah. Um, so was it, do you think it was initially the Soviet distrust of anything Western that initiated this Cold War, or was it more the actions of the United States? Um, well, I think that if you look at the Soviet Union's behavior at the outbreak of World War II, they were trying to expand into uh, Northern Europe uh, with, mm -hmm. uh, they made that pact with uh, Germany, mm -hmm. with uh, dividing up Poland, and they also invaded, I believe it was Finland. Yeah. Um, and so they already had uh, imperialistic style ambitions in Europe prior to the Cold War. And so I, I think it's just a, in some ways, a, an opportunity to set the reset button for their ambitions uh, once World War II ends. And given the fact, too, that not only is um, FDR dead, but Churchill is also out um, mm -hmm. at the very end of World War II. And so right. we have this figure here, Joseph Stalin, who has been in charge of his country for decades and is very savvy, very smart. And I think this is another thing that leads it to, to the idea. This is an opportunity. We have two powers that we fought with, and now they've changed leadership, and Stalin is the same. Yeah. Oh, that's an interesting yeah, point. Yeah, I think that is a really good point uh, to bring up. And, and Stalin's already been through his learning curve of how to expand and consolidate power, right? Because uh -huh. in the 1930s, for him, were this really messy time. But now, by 45, I mean, he's got his five-year plans are in place. He's got a war economy set up. It's it's actually working the way that he envisioned it would work with regards to collectivization and, and production. Uh, he has the largest army in the world. Yeah. And had it not been for the U.S. use of the atomic bomb in Japan, Japan, which was controversial, not just because it's an atomic bomb, but there's also this idea of like, was it necessary to drop the bomb to beat oh. the Japanese? Well, some historians and scholars will look at that and say that was a warning shot so yeah, the at Union. the Soviet Union yeah. and to let them know that you're that expansionary goal that Patrick, uh, that you brought up. You're right. I think that that's something that um, should definitely be considered when we think about the creation of really what now we can call a bipolar world. On the one side, you've got the United States and the other side, you've got the Soviet Union uh -huh. and every other country in between that's not already aligned uh -huh. is, is, is right for the taking by one of those two sides. Yeah. So it's, it's this idea, this bipolar world that we do have in 1946 um, when, like you had mentioned uh, Churchill's speech and the Iron Curtain has descended upon Europe and be, on one side of the Iron Curtain is obviously the, the Soviet control 
controlled region on the other side is, is you know, pro-democracy. And the Cold War is usually, from my understanding, presented as a battle between democracy and communism, a very restrictive form of government, very few rights for communism. Well, I mean, obviously, that's not the true definition of communism, but that's certainly how it was practiced under Stalin. And then totalitarian. The totalitarian, state, yeah. yeah. And then the democratic states of the Western nations like England and France in the United States. And like you had mentioned, in this bipolar world, the, the big issue that we see during the Cold War is both the United States and the Soviet Union are going to force nations to pick sides. Nobody can stay in the middle. You are either pro-democracy in the U.S. or you are pro-communist and pro-Soviet Union, and, and there is no gray area. There is no middle ground. All right, so there's your boxing glove analogy, right, Patrick? That's, Ooh, that's nice. the boom, boom, right? And so they're going to knock them out. So, all right, so if, if let's say Patrick is, or Mr. Hammond is um, the Soviet Union and I'm the United States, am I just going to be going red. in? <laughs> he is wearing, wearing red, he is, yeah. showed up prepared today, nicely done. Um, if, am I just going in and throwing haymakers then? Am I just going to try to knock him out if we keep this boxing analogy? Or what's holding me back as the United States from just, or from the Soviet perspective, from, from Hammond coming over and knocking me out? What, why don't we see the Cold War getting hot? It's this thing called mutually assured destruction, or MAD is what they called it. And the problem is, once both sides got access to nuclear weapons, here's the deal. If they directly fight each other, right, and it escalates, then one side's going to launch nuclear weapons at the other, and the other one's going to launch nuclear weapons, and we are going to have mutually assured destruction. We will destroy the planet. It was too dangerous of a game to have the Soviets and the United States in the boxing ring together. They could never directly face off, because if they did, it was going to lead to nuclear war. And so that means if they want to fight each other, that they can't do it directly, they're going to have to do it through others, and that is where we get this thing known as proxy wars. Mr. Hammond, can you talk to us about what a proxy war is? Well, instead of me fighting against Matt in the ring, pop, what we're doing oh. is we're going to have rings that are going to be far away from, uh, from us, and we're mm -hmm. going to support the boxers inside of those rings instead of directly fighting each other. And so we have situations like uh, the Korean conflict breaks out, mm -hmm. Vietnam breaks out. Well, the Soviet Union and the United States never directly attack each other. There's always a little bit of exceptions to that, but um, instead we both support opposite sides. Like uh -huh. in Vietnam, uh, the Soviets uh, uh, funnel money to North, North Vietnam uh -huh. and we support uh, South Vietnamese through uh -huh. manpower. And so we never directly engage in that conflict. We have what are called proxies, which are kind of like boxers that you uh, would, would hire to fight out uh, fight out your little battles. So I'm thinking like if when when um, Stallone in Rocky Four, right, he's he's got to hop back in the ring. He can't hop right back into the ring right away with Drago. There, he's not at that level. He's got to beat up some other dudes like Slick Willie from the alley and like the guy who washes <laughs> the dishes or something, right? It's, uh, it's like a big guy beating up a little guy, right? So that'd be like if we kept our metaphor, instead of me fighting you, I'm going to fight your cat or something like that, right? And you're going to try to fight my cat. Yes. Right, and you're gonna punch out my cat, and I might punch out your cat, but we're gonna do that instead of punching each other out because that's gonna lead to some real big, big problems. Right? I would like to broach <sighs> something here on story time with the historist. We in no way, shape, or form advocate for animal violence. No, just want to point that out. I saw that on Netflix. You don't mess with cats, right? You don't mess with cats. 
So, oh, go ahead, Mr. Hammond. Once I beat up your cat, don't do it, kids. Um, Then I have this element of propaganda that I can use Mm -hmm. in my own country, like a belt, sort of say, and say, I are whooped up uh, this nation for our good and well-being. And so both sides are like accumulating kind of like belts in a way Mm -hmm. along the way uh, to stir up propaganda elements and to stir Mm -hmm. their own populations to support these proxy wars um, throughout the Cold War as well. So then what I would want to do then is know when you're coming over to get my cat. I need to know your plans, right? Because I don't want you to get that that propaganda. I don't want other, you know, neighborhood people or whatever coming over to you and saying, hey, we're going to go to your side uh, versus those neighborhood people coming over to me and saying they're going to be on my side. So I'm going to want to use some espionage. I want to use some spies. Ooh. I want to figure out your plans. Mm. And I thought that this was a great inroad for, for a good story time with a history of story um you got to bear with me a little bit this one kind of jogs but it's a fun one um it's about the cia and some of their their mind control experiments that they were going to try to use to uh crack spies and send secret messages anyone else having pictures of chevy chase and dan Aykroyd right now Um, is that spies like us? Yes, it is. Oh my goodness. All right, students. So what you're going to want to do is go to IMDB and you're going to put in Chevy Chase. All right. That's two words. That's his name. Cause you guys don't know who he is. <laughs> yeah. Dan Aykroyd, you might know, right? And if you don't know his epic film, nothing but trouble, go ahead and give that a listen. I think on Rotten Tomatoes, it's at one right now. Ooh. So you can give it a little love. It's amazing. All right. So here's the stage. All right. Wait, Miss Ring, can I interrupt really quick? I just want to, I just want to clarify for, for me. So before we get into espionage, what we're saying for the Cold War so far is it's a bipolar world, United States versus Soviet Union. They will never directly fight each other because it's just too risky. It's going to blow up the entire planet. So what they end up do, they end up doing is supporting different groups and nations that uh, relatively support their ideas. So the United States will, will support pro-democratic rebels in Latin America, and then the Soviets will support pro-communist rebels in Latin America. And so those rebels will fight each other. Right. And then whichever side wins, either the United States or the Soviet Union is like, woo, see, we're better than everybody else. You to hold up that belt. And that will take place in Latin America, in the Middle East, um, a little bit in Africa, not as much as in Africa, but it does take place in Europe. It does take place in South Asia. Like it, these proxy wars are all over the globe. This, this is a this is okay. a global event. Yeah, so okay. you get the two main power players, and they're trying to figure each other out. They can't fight each other. They can fight on the sidelines. Uh, the like like uh, Mr. Hammond said, uh, United States essentially versus North Vietnam, or later like the Soviet Union versus Afghanistan. Right. Um, oh. But but they're the, both sides are weighing in whenever possible, and so uh, outside of of like the Cuban Missile Crisis, which is A, the closest the world ever came to ending, uh, and B, one of the few times that we see both sides directly squaring off, mm-hmm. um, and you get that wonderful piece of made-up history that Dean Rusk, oh, we were eyeball to eyeball on the other side, blinked. Yeah. A, no one said that. That's a cool thing to say, so somebody made that up afterwards. But B, it did shed some light on why we, we can't have direct confrontation right. from the American or Soviet perspective, right? Mm-hmm. So what they do is instead they start to engage in these low-level sort of spying events. And what the United States uh, attempted to do during the 1950s and early 1960s was to create a a mind control uh, uh, 
basically a process. And the, the, the short story version of how we get here is, uh, Mr. Hammond, you had brought up the Korean War as that, that first proxy war. Some American pilots have been shot down and basically been brainwashed vis-a-vis torture uh, in POW camps, prisoner war camps, um, to say that the United States was spraying like anthrax on uh, North Korea and on China and then the United States was bombing babies and all this sort of stuff. And these guys are saying this on TV. It's that propaganda belt that you were talking about. And so some of these servicemen, when the war is over, they get brought back and they're continuing to say like, no, I, I totally sprayed that anthrax. I totally blew up those babies. And the United States is like, A, that's not true, but also B, we can't have you going around saying that. So we need to deprogram you. And so they bring in this guy. We're going to call him Dr. Jolly West. His nickname was Jolly because he's a big, big guy. So his nickname was like Jolston uh, was his middle name. Everybody called him Jolly, right? So you got Jolly West. He is a, a, a mashup of like insider sort of like CIA OSS type of personality. He's a hypnotist and he's a psychologist who's doing a lot of his research around mind control drugs like truth serum and later um, it's like psychedelic drugs that are going to be really popular with hippies. Please tell (laughs) me, please tell me we're going to get a chicken dance out of this somehow. Oh, there's some dancing. There's some craziness that's about to go down here. Don't worry about that. So he starts working with the CIA sometime in the mid 1950s in the CIA coded uh, project called Project Bluebird. And, And it's a initial phase, the idea was you could implant memories into people, but they don't know they have the memory. Uh And then you could send them like overseas or into the Soviet Union. And you could use this as a way of basically like passing notes that cannot be intercepted. It's like a a mind control version of invisible ink. Right, um, but uh, the 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 funding for this project was really small. The the there's like not enough appreciation for what it could be used, so it gets uh, uh, consumed by another CIA project that's looking at doing mind control for like soldiers on the battlefield. And this is called Operation Artichoke. So we've gone Operation Bluebird <laughs> to Operation Artichoke. Are All we going right? to get to the heart of the matter of this? <laughs> I love those puns. <laughs> All right. Patrick, you with me? I can see your face right now, Patrick. This is this is true history. All right. Yes, it is. And we have the CIA hippies, artichokes, we got it all. All of it, right? And so Operation Artichoke starts to like, you know, bear some fruit. I don't know. Oh yes, here we go. All right. This is like shades of King Cholera just without the (laughs) diarrhea. So Operation Artichoke starts to bear some fruit, and there's this belief that, hey, we could actually like implant memories and jolly west goes back to this guy dr gottlieb he's in charge of the cia program and he's like i have had a breakthrough i can actually create a false memory i can take a real memory from somebody like you know the first time you ride ride your bike Uh i can take that memory out of somebody's head and i can put a new memory in their head that says you fell down the first time you tried to ride your bike on your own and you got scared and you never wanted to ride it again and then when that person comes out of hypnosis they think they don't know how to ride a bike, right? And so then the idea was, oh man, we could totally mess with the Soviets with this, but we got to ramp up this on a bigger scale because we could use this for passing notes like Bluebird, Operation Bluebird, Mm -hmm. but we could also use this to destabilize like Operation Artichoke. So we get the creation of one of the most nefarious, awesome, heavy metal influenced CIA programs of all time, Operation MKUltra. All right. Yes. Yeah. MK you know Ultra. Oh, I'm sorry. I don't. I don't know the MK Ultra reference. All right, Patrick. Why don't you handle MK Ultra for for some um, of this to help her out? Man, I'm going to go on your expertise on this one, <laughs> and you seem really excited to talk about this. I don't want to take this away from you, and 
choke on all the info. Oh, oh another like pun. It. All right. So first of all, anytime anybody refers to anybody like as an expert, you got to, those are the air quotes, right? <laughs> <laughs> Nobody's an expert on this. No. But we do know that MKUltra was real. For a long time, the CIA, like plausible deniability, this isn't really real. Um, but there was like a, uh, a senatorial hearing after Watergate. This is mid 1970s uh, at this point when MK Ultra is actually disclosed. And um, what is disclosed is by this guy Gottlieb that like what we did is we took people like everyday Americans. We took people mm-hmm. out of prison cells. We took people out of um, the military service. Like think like the Tuskegee experiments, unfortunately. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And um, people were dosed with LSD. They were hypnotized. Um, the most famous, and this is as close Just like Tuskegee, but with acid. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Which makes it better, I guess. <laughs> um, but <laughs> essentially, um, Gottlieb has to disclose, and he gets full immunity, but this is on congressional record. This is like uh-huh. 1975. Um, uh, he discloses that the United States at least um, dosed two people that were informed that they were dosed with acid outside of their consent to see what would happen. Um, and this guy, Jolly West, he shows up whenever there's these massive events um, of like basically like implanted memories or um, like out of control, crazy stuff. Uh-huh. And so he'll show up like Jolly West will be in the Hate ashbury in 1967, 1968, uh, when Charles Manson is up there doing his thing right and so there's this connection to like did the cia have some sort of influence uh through operation chaos which is this awesome book that both patrick and i are reading right now this is how i became a <laughs> expert, expert. Right? <laughs> uh, i think that's uh tom o'brien i think is the name of the I believe so, yeah. author on that one so chaos operation chaos the secret history of uh the cia and the manson murders um but yeah, Manson's up there. But I think the person that's most intriguing for most Americans that has a connection to Jolly West is Jack Ruby. Jack Ruby oh my gosh. Guy who shot Lee Harvey Oswald, yeah. who's the guy who shot, shot Kennedy. John F. Kennedy yeah. in 1963. And that's where you start to get all these like crazy Cold War sort of conspiracies and stuff. Um, but West is the guy who declared Jack Ruby insane after a two-hour sit-down with him. But Ruby had said, um, you know, uh, in, in lots of interviews before this, like, hey, uh, he was a sound mind. He knew exactly why he shot um, uh, Oswald and all this sort of stuff. And then West comes in and this guy is like clinically insane. The one thing that Ruby said he had no real memory of is why he shot uh, Oswald like in that moment. Like he didn't, he knew hmm. he was angry. He knew he wanted um, to get revenge for Jackie O and all that sort of stuff. But like he doesn't have, he had said in, 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 uh, filed court papers. He didn't know why he chose that moment that day. So, so this Jolly West guy, and I keep thinking Jolly Green Giant to go with the whole artichoke vegetable theme. But anyway, <laughs> so this, <laughs> this oh, oh, oh. Green Giant, yeah. Um, so Jolly West basically goes to San Francisco or other places, you know, peace, love, and dope. These guys are all like tripping on acid or or doing whatever, and then he does he just show up in mass gatherings and say one of us one of us like what kind is of. he mass hypnotizing people and then getting kind them to do of. stupid things yeah he set up like a a, a crash pad on uh, he was working through a free medical clinic in hate ashbury in 67 mm-hmm. uh, and he was just getting people to basically hang out and uh, allegedly um providing them with drugs so that that he could study um their behavior 
years. And, and again, if we take this all the way back, because like I said, when I started this historicity type story, yeah. we could take it all the way back to the Cold War, though, and to what Patrick talked about with proxies. This was a way of trying to figure out to destabilize elements. And inside of the United States, like the peace, love, hippie movement was seen as destabilizing. Uh-huh. Uh, think about like how the Roman Empire would have viewed Christianity. Right. Uh, when Christianity first comes in, it's something that cuts at the foundations of the like, society. And to, again, just so we're clear, I'm not saying hippies or Christians or any of that sort of stuff, but I'm saying like this was- <laughs> Or not Christians or not exactly, Christians. Right? We're, let's not let our, no false equivocations here. Um, but what I am saying is that uh, there was enough fear inside of the United States that there could be destabilization that- um, one of the ideas is the Manson murders, uh, which were committed by hippies, were meant to show Americans how nefarious and dangerous it <gasps> could be. No. And so, right. so we would take people, we'd brainwash them, give them false memories, insert them into a foreign country, or we do this to a group of people, get them to start some kind of movement in a foreign country based mm-hmm. on false ideas created by drug-induced whatever, and then that would lead to future proxy wars? Or or winning future proxy wars. Damn. So uh, I don't know. I, I definitely want to see. I want to throw a bone to Patrick if he knows this one. Do you know Patrick about the the mass dosing experiments experiments in New York City that were held by the uh, CIA in the late fifties? Um, does this involve um, someone throwing themselves out of a building window? You're, talk- you're talking about Project Wormwood or oh. Wormwood. That's the Netflix one. Yeah. Okay. Well, there's we more. Are- too many projects, people. Way there's, too many projects. We, we're, we're getting deep into the, <laughs> this is the part of the internet that like very few people go to. That's not the dark web. This is like the nerdy conspiracy theory side of things. Um, but uh, one of the, um, there's like six, 16,000 documents reportedly that were not destroyed by the CIA. They were like left in a warehouse and then like people were just like, Oh, I forgot about those. Sorry. Um, and in those documents as a record of an attempt to take like LSD, put it in this giant holding tank, use like a, the, the heat from the engine of a taxi cab to, to vaporize the LSD and expel it out of the exhaust pipe of the vehicle as it drives around New York. Holy shit. Oops, stuck. Darn. <laughs> yep. <laughs> that's <there>. right. <laughs> um, but th- this was supposed to dose a lot of people so they could see if they could create these destabilizing events. And the idea here was like, A, you could create like an army of people, right? Think like the what Roosevelt pulls off, um, Kermit Ro- uh, Roosevelt pulls off in Iran uh, for the coup against Mossadegh. Uh, but uh, you, could, you could do something like that or you could destabilize an entire army. Like if that worked, you could have something like um, uh, Agent wow. Orange style bombers fly over a battlefield and, and essentially dose an entire army. And then those people don't want to fight anymore. And so this was a way of gaining an edge, right? Damn. It'd be like, um, you know, like old time bare knuckle boxers. If we get back to our boxing analogy, you sue um, blow cayenne pepper in the eye of somebody else or put it on, mm-hmm. on your hands so that when you punch the guy in the face, if you got it just right, he'd get cayenne pepper on his eyes. He couldn't see, and then you could knock him out. So this was supposed to be a way of creating an advantage uh, in that head to head battle so that there didn't have to be proxy wars anymore. One side could defeat the other. Right. And we know all about the stuff from the United States and what we were doing because of like the congressional disclosures through the seventies mm-hmm. and eighties. We have no idea what the Soviet union was up to. Well, yeah, because we don't have the documentation. Go ahead, Mr. Hammond. I'm sorry. I'm just wondering if the Soviets were as willing to experiment on their own, um, on their own people as we were. I mean, oh, God, is, yeah. This is crazy town and true madness with right. 
um, I mean, I figured what if, we were up to. If Stalin was willing to like starve the people in the Ukraine to get a message across, I could totally see them doing the exact same thing. I mean, I could. Right. Some of those hardliners, um, especially as you get into the 80s and it becomes mm -hmm. more and more apparent that the United States is going to win the Cold War because of, you know, material advantage and, and right. money and everything else. Um, you could start to imagine like, uh, you know, we were talking uh, off air before we started like moose and squirrel, like this whole thing of like, you know, oh. the Soviet Union. Um, they did like do some experiments or something like trying to like control walruses or something like that to like, you know, put landmines or uh, sea mines on like submarines in the Arctic Circle so that they could sink American nuclear missile okay. submarines. All right, hold on one second. <sighs> Cold War's nuts. Well, I don't necessarily agree in any way, shape or form with mass dosing anybody for LSD for for you know destabilization. I at least not see the necessarily. Not, I see the method in the madness. What if the Soviets, how many walruses were you going to have access to? And how deep do you think these walruses are going to go? You just strap a mine onto a walrus and say, go? That's the idea. We have to find out how deep walrus can go. <laughs> I, I don't know. I mean, but I mean, I, I think, you know, we're, we're all familiar with the, like the quote unquote conventional battlegrounds right. of of uh, uh, the Cold War, right? The, the proxy wars that you talked about, Mr. Hammond, or the space race, right? right? You know, we'll go to space and we'll fight up there. But, you know, I think that the Cold War, one of the things that's really interesting is it really kind of wove its way into society and really changed the way we think about ourselves and we think about the, like other countries in our world. Um, mm -hmm. And, you know, and that's still with us today. Yeah. And I would, again, as, on a side note, which I know we can't get to in this podcast, but the the Soviets in the United States forcing people to pick sides and then supporting these, not actors, but like these groups in um, various proxy wars from especially like the 1960s all the way to the late 1980s, that is going to come back and bite both sides in the butt. Like it has huge ramifications post uh, 1990 when the Cold War ends and, you know, Berlin Wall falls. Yeah, it totally informs the worldview, which leads me to a question I got for both of you guys. Uh, we've talked about this on previous episodes. I think even in our last one, mm -hmm. uh, those poor millennials getting blamed for all those beach parties <gasps> lately. I know, I was wrong. You were it's, wrong. That's it Gen was Z. Gen Z. That's I, Gen know. Z. I know. We're, millennials were bad for different reasons. All right. <laughs> so, but both of you guys are Gen X. Yeah. And, and you came up not through like the the whole nuclear hysteria, right? That that right. would have been the baby boom generation mm -hmm. that uh, that grew up with the like we're all going to get blown up. You guys came up through this different time period where um, a lot of the nuclear missile test ban treaties mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. the beginnings of like the strategic arms mm -hmm. limitation was going on. Like, what was it like growing up in this moment where like, we're still fighting the cold war. And I'm really specifically thinking about the Reagan years when, when things started to ramp back <sighs> up in 81, 82. Um, because again, for all of our listeners, but even for me, mm -hmm. I'm, I'm not born until 83. So like my memory right. is non-existent existent of the, that time period um i don't i want to talk early on because my my biggest memories are, are some of the memories are early on i do remember we <laughs> we did do like nuclear like nuclear war drills where we'd have to climb yes, under, our yeah, under your desk that's gonna save you <laughs> and then i do remember some movie that came out in the early 1980s, like the day after tomorrow the day or after just the day after. And it just, it was this whole thing that the, the, the Russians had or Soviets had launched nuclear weapons and like cities were exploding in the United States. And it was all about these after effects of like, 
a nuclear winter and people's skin melting off. I'm like, that is the biggest piece of propaganda. And it scared the crap out of me. Like, I'm like, oh my God. And, and it got me, I remember thinking, oh my God, I hate the Soviet Union. I don't want them to do this to our people. What about you, Mr. Hammond? What do you remember? Um, I remember those two things as well. And the day after is interesting because the president of the United States at the time, Ronald Reagan, had seen this as well. Mm -hmm. And it scared and terrified him as to what nuclear war would look like were mm -hmm. to occur. And some people say this is one of those arenas where this starts the real negotiations that Mr. Burling was talking about of uh, de-escalation. Hey, let's, let's put limits on this so we don't blow each other up. And um, it's interesting too, because I think what we see in the United States in terms of pop culture is we see more movies that are, that seem to be more optimistic about the Cold War, like Top Gun. Like, oh, dun, um, dun, 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 dun. Yeah. that's right. Ice. And, uh, <laughs> And Rocky IV, for that matter, where this isn't going to end in a nuclear destruction of both sides, that mm -hmm. we are going to win this, and we're going to win this without, mm -hmm. uh, without nuclear war. And I do, and later in the period, like 1989, you know, and I know what, you were six years old. Um, that's, wow, that's great. Um, but I do, I do remember watching the Berlin Wall fall. Like it was, because CNN was on, that was when CNN first came out. And I just remember, and it, it just, we kept it on, you know, all night and all day in my household as more and more people came from East Germany and climbed on top of the wall and people from West Germany came up and joined and they were, they were tearing the wall down. And I do remember thinking, oh my God, this is, this is a moment in history um and it was i just i remember being excited but i still get goosebumps about it wow mm -hmm. that because it was just like the coolest thing and i think at that stage of the game i think both sides realized uh, you know enough was enough like we'd had it we knew the united states was going to win but i don't remember the united states doing a tremendous amount of gloating about it i don't i don't remember going woo we won we won and i think that has more to do with maybe reagan backing off the you know the great evil that the Soviet Union was, and then also Gorbachev being in power in the Soviet Union. Interesting. So who, who's Gorbachev? Maybe, Patrick, you can handle this one. Who's, who's Gorbachev um, uh, in, in the, the, the span of Soviet leadership, and how is he responsible? We talked about Reagan, but who's Gorbachev? How does he end this thing? Uh, so um, Gorbachev uh, is very interesting because he has a different model for the Soviet Union than people we previously looked at, especially Stalin. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, another really important uh, Soviet premier is Nikita Khrushchev. Khrushchev. And then there um, were... Uh, we will crush you. We will crush, crush you. Yeah, he took a shoe in the UN. Yes. Yeah. Awesome and, um, YouTube uh, video out there. Totally. Yeah, there is. And then under Brezhnev, which was the next really important uh, premier, we see this escalation of Cold Warism, mm -hmm. of the mad doctrine. Um, and then he dies, and then there's a couple of minor uh, premiers, and then Gorbachev takes over, and he really has a different vision of the Soviet Union. And, and in fact, it's kind of like, um, I would say, like what the Japanese did prior to when the Meiji Restoration happens. Like, we have to look to the West a little, little bit because we're starting to see... Uh, things fall apart a little bit. Mm -hmm. oh. uh, we have this nuclear um, uh, uh, facility. Arsenal, yeah. Nu no, this nuclear facility that, that melts Oh, down. yeah, 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 oh, yeah. Chernobyl. Chernobyl. That happens yeah. early on in his premiership, and the cracks were being shown. So he starts to put in some policies of openness and trying to get uh, some of the his satellite countries that are part of the Soviet Union to liberalize a little bit, to come up with some, some experimental models and, and maybe loosening up on some restrictions from a more centralized state. And this proves to be, un, unfortunately for Gorbachev, he didn't envision this, but this proves to be most of the undoing of the Soviet Union yeah. because 
this taste of freedom that these people were given under, under Gorbachev, they wanted more. They wanted the whole elephant. They didn't just want the tail that, they were, uh. that, um, that Gorbachev was trying to give them. And this led to a, a lot of uh, infighting, a lot of lost control. Uh. And uh, by the, when the Berlin Wall falls, uh-huh. it takes just one more year later for the entire Soviet system to fall apart. Interesting. It's in, I, I think I like the parallels that you draw with that too, Meiji, not just yeah. the Meiji restoration, but um, it also gets me thinking about um, the last days of um, the Tsarist empire and uh, some of the, the reforms mm. that were attempted after like bloody Sunday in, in 1905. And this idea that if you're going to go down this path mm-hmm. of reforming, you're either all in or you're not in at yeah. all. Right. Yeah. And so, like if Stalin was like the the premier, the the man of steel, Gorbachev almost sounds like the man of like tin foil, right? He wants to still have the facade of strength, um, but it's 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 bendable, it's pliable, it's it's hollow. Yeah. It's it's not what it what it used to be. I'm wondering if, and I don't know, but I'm wondering if Gorbachev didn't truly understand because the the level of angst or anger or bitterness of some of the satellite countries like Hungary, like mm. Poland, um, Czechoslovakia, which is now the Czech Republic, but I don't think he understood the animosity these groups really did have towards the Soviet Union. Um, you th- you think he would have after the Solidarity Movement in Poland in right, the early that's 80s. that's what I was just going to ask you about. Yeah, but, but he didn't. It didn't obviously work. And so, yeah, it's it's this idea that once they started to be able to break away a little bit, it, it was it was going to be hell in a handbasket. It was all going to break loose. And that's kind of what we see. You were talking, Matt, about the 1905 revolution, but we see with the 1917 February revolution that there was that provisional moderate government, and that just wasn't going to be enough. No. And so we do get the October revolution that that brings in an entirely new uh, dynamic to Russia. And I think that's what we're going to see in Hungary and and Poland and everything else like that. And and Gorbachev just can't control it. So by that time, it's done. And then when the satellite states gain their freedom, you know that the Soviet people can't be that far behind because they're like, no, it's all or nothing at this stage of the game. Yeah. And all throughout this process, um, as Mr. Bereen or Matt has brought up, is that uh, the West is trying to uh, change the hearts and minds of the, the Soviet system uh, through espionage, but also, ultra. <laughs> <laughs> but, but also just through um, uh, other propaganda networks like Radio right. Free Europe yeah. and, and advertising basically like, this is what the West has. Look at our lifestyle. Mm-hmm. Look at, hey, you guys get to watch Rocky Four as well now. Uh, <laughs> or Top Gun. And, and just looking at the lifestyles of, of regular Americans or regular Brits, mm-hmm. Uh, compared to what was being offered uh, behind the Iron Curtain. And I think it led to a lot of animosity uh, for the system in the yeah. mm-hmm. by the people. That's a good point, yeah. So the Cold War starts in 1945, 1946, because we've got two superpowers who absolutely want to spread their version of the world, whether it's the pro-democratic U.S. or the pro-communist Soviet Union. As a result of you know, nuclear weapons, they can't directly fight each other. And so they're going to fight in these proxy wars. And with each victory, one side or the other, you know, if the United States wins a proxy war through its allies, then they're like, woo, we're the best. Or the Soviet Union wins a proxy war, then the Soviets think they're the best. And these proxy wars continue, 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 continue. But eventually, in the late 1980s, what we're going to see is the Soviet Union simply cannot keep up with the spending or the lifestyles of the West. And then once Soviet people or their satellite states 
get wind of this and Gorbachev starts loosening restrictions, then it, it's the end game for communism and the Soviet dream. The Cold War ends in what, 1990, 1991, and then it's on to basically kind of a brand new world. Is, is that it in a nutshell? Yeah, I, th I think so. Yeah. yeah, I think that, that I mean, yeah, because I mean, if we go back to that generational piece, like growing up a millennial, like that, that, that was always in the past that, yeah. I mean, there's that whole, you know, George H.W. Bush end of history, mm -hmm. um, you know, in, in that idea, you know, mocking Marxism and we're going to turn the page and, you know, and now when we look at some of these leftover tensions, they seem to be something different mm -hmm. um, than they were before. And, 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 you know, the rest of the world in a lot of ways was held captive. It seemed mm -hmm. like for a long time during this cold war, and now we've got this new space created um, for India or for sub-Saharan Africa, mm -hmm. or for a lot of the, the Latin American states to kind of, you know, flex in their own right, or, yeah. you know, think the South Korea or Japan and become what they what they could have became maybe decades sooner had it not been for all that tension. Yeah, I think it is a new world that comes out of out of all this. A new frightening world. This wasn't yeah, it's not better. And when the system fell apart, um, the Soviet Union lost control of its nuclear arsenal in some ways to where uh, centralized control is no longer there. Now you had countries like the Ukraine. Hey, we have <laughs> we have weapons now. And uh, what happens to those weapons and who's going to maintain oh. them? Uh, without the Soviet as, uh, apparatus to maintain them. So the United States kind of is put in this position where we have to kick in some money too to make mm -hmm. sure that uh, we don't have more meltdowns or that these weapons don't fall into the wrong hands. Mm -hmm. Wrong hand being people who do, do not believe in the mad doctrine. Right. 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 Who yeah. don't and, care, yeah. Yeah. And so I think, yeah, that takes us all the way to, you know, the United States and policies right up to mm -hmm. today. And, and, you know, there's this heavy backlash, it seemed like in 2016 of, uh, against like America being the pivot point of the world and because we pay mm -hmm. for everything. But I think you bring up a good point, Patrick, of like the United States had some onus still. The world had been created and 50% of this world was directly molded by the United States. Uh, and then the other 50% was molded by the response to the United States. Right. And now there's this responsibility um, that, you know, we had shouldered for, for decades. And, and hopefully, um, if, you know, I'll speak as an individual as an opinion here, but that we continue to, to understand that there, it is a scarier world in a lot of ways. And we do have a lot of onus for the, the way, why yeah. things are the way they are. Ooh, that should be our next podcast. then. maybe that's what we talk about. We do another Ooh. podcast with the three of us and talk about, okay, now that we have this brand new world in the 1990s, why is it, or why does it not look that much more safe than it did when we had the Cold War for 50 years. Because everybody did think once the Cold War ended, everything was going to be awesome and we're copacetic and peaceful. And yet, actually, I would argue, and I, and I could be wrong, it, it is a far more dangerous place now because we aren't a bipolar world. Does that make sense? Yeah, yes. I think so. Yeah, yes, it does. All right. So. All right. This time next week for part two of this podcast. I like it. Two part. We haven't done a, a multi-part podcast. I know. In a while. I'm excited. And and Patrick, you can be back. You'll be our guest historist. Oh, I'm absolutely honored to be here. I will be here if I can. And uh, there's more Rocky movies to talk about. <laughs> oh, okay. Yeah. Okay. So I'm not going to, even though I'm in like quarantine, we're all in quarantine, yeah. right? Um, 
I'm not going to watch Rocky Four. I'm just going to say it right now, and I'm going to guess many of our listeners are not going to. Does Stallone punch out Drago? Does Does he win? What does he get bloodied? Like, do we have mutually assured destruction? Like, what happens at the end of Rocky Four? Okay. Spoiler alert! Spoiler alert! Rocky wins. Oh, and, not the and United by, States. Yeah, and by the end of the movie, by the end of the fight, the big fight. Uh, all the Russians in the audience, because it's in Russia, of course, yeah. um, in Moscow, I think. Yeah. Uh, at the beginning, Drago is just taking, taking them out, taking them down. There's no way Rocky can win, but through guts and determination and American spirit, right. uh, he, he comes back and he starts winning and the crowd turns. <laughs> and the crowd embraces Rocky <laughs> and they start singing, Rocky, Rocky, Rocky. And in the end, he wins and... That's, in some America, ways, baby. kind of what happened. That's I think they were right pumping there. the LSD into the stadium because I, so I really <laughs> cannot see any Russians in the in the mid nineteen eighties ever turning towards the United what States. What you don't see is that old man in Rocky's corner is throwing Levi's jeans <laughs> out into the crowd. Yes. Vote for Rocky. Vote for Rocky. And they're yeah. all like Rocky jeans, whatever. Man. <laughs> yeah. Levi's, Levi's, <laughs> what they were saying, if you listen closely. But they read it through a filter. Yeah. All right, guys. Well, this has been fun. It's always good to get out and connect, uh, especially in these, these times. Mm-hmm. So thanks for being here, Patrick. Thank you for having me. All right. Always enjoyable, Mr. Breen. All right, Jen, who are we and what is this? <gasps> Ladies and gentlemen, this was another edition of Storytime with the Historists, and we will see you next time. All right. <laughs>